All right, guys, welcome to the podcast. We always have to talk about our charity first thing because they matter most. Ohio Fish Rescue are your friends that help big fish find better homes. <laughs> That's it. That's it is. That. That's exactly right. Uh, you have a large fish that needs a home. Call these guys. Don't put it in a lake. Don't put it in a stream. And for God's sakes, don't flush it down a toilet. These fish uh, deserve better. And too many uh, pet shops sell giant fish without talking to the person. Nope. Your uh, you know tiger catfish is not going to work in a 10-gallon tank. And, again, Ohio Fish Rescue is there. They'll either try to rehome it or keep it in their own facilities to give it a nice, long, healthy life. Go to their website, ohiofishrescue.com, and they have T-shirts. They have ways where you can support them financially, giving them on their Patreons, PayPal, or even GoFundMe. And uh, there's numbers on the website as well. Give them a call. 216-773-0407. Literally just pick up the phone and be like, excuse me, sir, uh, I love you. And just hang up. That's it. (laughs) He just needs to know that you you care. And appreciate him. Give him a shout out. All right. Let's kick that podcast. Let's do it. Welcome to the Aquarium Guys podcast with your hosts, Jim Colby and Rob Zolson. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Aquarium Guys podcast. Coming live from you at Studio B in Perm, Minnesota, in Rob's basement. We are excited to be here today. We've got some special guest stars we haven't announced yet, and they'll be with us just very shortly. I'm Rob Zolson, and uh, the deliciously sounding man that was just introducing ourselves is... Jim Colby. So today, we got finally got back. Adam, welcome, buddy. Thank you. Glad to be back. As you can tell, his voice sounds so much better. He's working on now his his room to be in a podcast studio because we're across the state from each other. He's got a good mic, but uh, you have to uh, forgive him. He's actually tenting himself with a blanket just to make sure that his audio quality is as good as it can be for you listeners. So we're hoping that maybe Adam hasn't had beans and rice or something for dinner because he'll probably kill himself by the end of the podcast. Don't gas yourself, buddy. Don't do it. I, I won't. So today we have a very special guest. Steve Rabicki from angelsplus.com. Introduce yourself, sir. Uh, well, uh, Steve Rabicki, I've been uh, doing angelfish for most of my life. And uh, uh, not a whole lot else I can say other than that because my life's pretty boring other than uh, doing fish. Well, uh, you know, secretly, you know, I'm assuming that you like to go out dancing every now and again. <laughs> I danced at my daughter's weddings, and uh, <laughs> and and before I was married, that uh, that was also a long time ago. Well, you know, at least I wasn't wrong. Now, now, how many years have you been doing this, Steve? You've been in this business a very long time. Well, it, actually, as far as like uh, an official business, I started that um, in the mid '80s. Um, before that, it was more of an informal, you know, hundred tank hobby where I took fish to pet stores and went to fish auctions and, you know, that kind of thing. And I did that for quite a few years before I started actually shipping fish out, um, advertising in magazines and, you know, and then eventually, you know, know, the internet come along and then I, you know, switched from advertising in magazines exclusively to just advertising on the internet or or having a website. And that's really... And so I, I, I started a long, long time ago, though. I mean, I literally started, you know, I had angelfish since, you know, probably 1963 or so. And, uh... 
bred my first fish when I was a teenager and first angelfish. And so I, I've been doing it, a, you know, a long time. It's just that it, it gradually progressed to the point where I went from five tanks to 10 tanks to 50 tanks to 100 tanks and uh, to a peak of uh, 475 tanks. And now I'm kind of regressing back down to the 350 area. So well, that's, uh, that's kind of the general history. That's what we uh, brought you on is you with Angels Plus are, at least I've done a lot of research, seem to be the first website that I can find that offered fish on uh, selling online for the first time. They had listings and talking about it, but you seem to be, and I've, I've done a lot of homework up to this interview, making sure of this, and I can't find anybody past you, but you look to be the first person that sold online, and that's really the topic of our podcast today is the history of online uh, on sales for fish. So again, thank you for coming on. We're going to go through a couple cleanup things before we get into the interview too far here. So we had a caller this last week. Thank you guys for calling. Absolutely. We've been begging people to give us a call, and we got our first caller, and it came up with a fantastic question. So let's get right into it. I'm going to play the recording. It is uh, about a minute and a half. Here we go. Hi, my name is John from Pennsylvania. I was listening to your episode 5 about koi farming, and I do this on a hobby scale. I have about 12 fish um, in a relatively small pond, um, about 2,500 to 3,000 gallons. Um, I have a question about clarity in the water and wondering if I have too many fish in there. Um, like I said, about 12 fish in a, at most, 3,000-gallon pond, um, and I cannot get the water clear no matter what I do. I tried black trap door snails, and I'm pretty sure my fish ate all of those. Um, I had about 30, and I have not seen any. Um, and I have a pretty good um, filter system uh, and keep up with that. And I'm wondering if, A, I have too many fish in there, which it doesn't seem like I do, um, and I have plenty of plant life in there as well. And the other uh, question is, should I do a water change and start it from scratch? I'd, I'd like to have a clear pond so I can see the fish. And I understand that, you know, they have plenty of food with all the algae that's in there, but it's green and murky. doesn't smell, but I just want to be able to see my fish. If you could answer those questions for me, that'd be great. Thanks, and enjoy the podcast. Bye. Perfect. I appreciate that. John from Pennsylvania, we... Uh... Got to follow up. Um, I texted him back and forth trying to get a little more information because there's a lot to go over there. Um, clarity is not just one thing. It's a, it's a collective of things. So, number one, his size of the pond seems adequate. You know, 2,500 gallons to 3,000 gallons. That could be the dimensions of the pond could be spread in a lot of different ways. So, if it's too shallow, you're going to have a lot of algae problem reflecting off the bottom. But, um, again, the average depth of his uh, pond is three feet. So, that's a decent depth. His fish are anywhere from, a, uh, you know, I'm assuming to a foot to two feet. That should be 12 uh, individual fish. That's about the limit you want to put in your pond. So they'll definitely have a large amount of waste. But uh, the things I didn't get is the amount of flow his pump handles. Because uh, your filter sure cleans out the particles in the water. But most of the time in a pond, it's outside. There's a lot of direct sunlight. That's not the issue. The issue that really cleans up their pond's clarity is a UV filter, a UV sterilizer. And as long as you're cycling that pond, at least uh, everybody likes to do at least once an hour as a standard, you're sterilizing the algae in the water and it'll make it nice and crystal clear. There's also other things you can do, such as using barley, raw barley, to disintegrate in your pond. And you can get these in barley balls. They wrap them up quite nice and meant to like throw right into your pond. 
The barley, as it decomposes, creates a natural algicide, almost like a small minimal hydrogen peroxide, that prevents or slows down the algae from blooming and growing in your water and on the walls of the pond. So those would be the recommendations is, number one, do you have a UV filter? And if you do, you know, how fast is your pump pumping through the gallons per hour? And try different things like barley. And, you know, snails, people say it cleans up. They're not going to change the water quality. They're actually just going to add more bio load because they're going to eat the algae on the side of the tank and then create more waste. So they're great to mow down the algae, feed your koi because they're going to gobble them up. But those are the big recommendations we recommend. And again, John, thank you for calling in. Um, again, we'll be texting back and forth. And anybody else that wants to give us a call, certainly go to our website. It's the Aquarium Guys Podcast, or excuse me, AquariumGuysPodcast.com. And scroll down to the bottom of the website. We have our contact information there where you can either um, call in, text us with questions, or email us directly. And just to remind our listeners, our number is 218. 218- 214-9214. We love, love having these. We were super excited to see this in. Very excited. And, you know, it, it clarifies things that we may have missed in the show. So your calling in helps a lot of other people that have the same question. I just, I just got one thing to add, Rob's. Um, when you're out looking for a sterilizer to put in your pond, uh, like Rob said, um, you want to take and make sure that you have the right gallon per flow per hour. But the other thing, too, when you're purchasing... A sterilizer is you want to take a look how much is the replacement bulbs you can find sterilizers out there at a really cheap price but if a replacement bulb is half the price or three-fourths of the price of that sterilizer you might want to reevaluate what you're actually getting it's like buying a, a printer for your computer at home you know if you're buying a printer for $39 but it's costing you $75 every time to put ink in it you know it's not very cost-effective so that'd be my uh, my little two cents in there and then mine would be uh, if you do get a sterilizer, make sure that it's a twisting, like a turbo twist sterilizer. I found that those work better than just the regular straight shot UV sterilizers, at least for me, at least. Yeah, it's all about whenever I've used them. It's all about how long that water can stay inside the UV, uh, UV sterilizer. So if it twists, it's just more time being against those UV rays sterilizing the water. Yeah, and it won't clear up overnight, but it clears up fairly quickly. Um, Steve, you got anything to add on to that? Well, I think you guys are pretty much spot on about the only thing I do have koi ponds myself and, uh, I have tons of algae and it doesn't bother me because I just don't care. (laughs) You should (laughs) have algae. But but when it comes to algae and this, this is true, whether it's an aquarium or a pond or whatever, um, it's a combination of food and light and, uh, two things help with algae. One is uh, reduce the light. So in the case of an outdoor pond, you shade it with things like lily pads and, you know, maybe some canopies over near the pond so that, you know, you cut down on the number of hours where you have direct light into the pond. Uh, And and then, uh, you know, if you, if you take care of that, then um, generally the sterilizers have less work to do. There's less algae to begin with. And uh, I think you can be pretty successful just following, you know, these, you know, you guys' uh, recommendations with the sterilizer and reducing the light that's, that's basically feeding that, uh, that, that algae. Thanks again for calling in, John. Hope to hear from uh, more of you listeners. Give us a call. We, we love having these questions. So, uh, again, a little more cleanup. 
So we're going to talk a couple different things about the future of the podcast. We're very um, ple- pleasantly surprised. We don't have not put a dollar of advertisement in. It's been very little word of mouth because we're busy people, and apparently the internet has definitely picked up on our podcast. Uh, going out there, there's only a handful of, I would say, decent aquarium podcasts, and there's been a lot that's closed down in the last year or two. And uh, we're getting a heavy amount of listeners, so... To keep up with your popular demand, we have talked about. Or we need to talk about the future of our podcast. The future. So, what we're looking into is again. You want a merch store. You want the you know deliciousness of the aquarium guys on your T-shirt or a hoodie. So we're gonna get that uh, rolling to you as soon as we can. Um, number one, we need to uh, tell more people about this. So that really relies on two things. Number one, us putting out a little of social media advertisement. But the bigger thing that's invaluable is tell your friend about our podcast send them a link you know find two friends this week that uh you know is in the hobby send this to them tell them to subscribe and then we're also going to try to look for conferences to meet you guys in person and uh you know talk shop right uh at the convention so if you have a convention that uh you want to suggest we will certainly look into traveling and uh get that to you in the future yeah, and we're very excited about all this. If you come across with some great ideas, we've got four or five things lined up um, in the near future. But if you come up with some ideas that you want us to talk about or find out about, uh, if we don't know what we're talking about, we'll find the people that do know. So if you have any suggestions, what you want to hear about it, give us a call. Well, perfect. I think that does uh, does well for cleanup. And uh, let's let's just dive right into the topic. So we got a, a little highlight from you, Steve, on uh, your background, but, uh, you know, is, is angelfish clearly your favorite fish? Well, that's a tough one because, you know, I started out um, basically being attracted to the hobby from guppies um, and goldfish. <laughs> Although I got to say, early on, I did see a pair of angelfish that, to this, of course, I was probably five years old when I saw them. They seemed like they were three times larger than any fish I've ever seen to this date. And uh, it was a breeding pair. And my, my mother had a friend who liked fish. And she, uh, uh, we'd go over and visit her every now and then. And she had a house where she had pot, pot goldfish in ponds outdoors. And she had aquariums inside. And in the wintertime, she had 200-gallon tanks in her walls that were filled with these goldfish. She'd bring them in out of the ponds, put them in these tanks, and keep them there for the winter. And she had a little room all by itself that just had aquariums in it, and it was filled with guppies. And I love those those guppies, the colors and the, and the varieties and, and uh, the goldfish. They just mesmerized me. But she had one tank with a pair of angelfish in it. It was a breeding pair, probably just silvers, um, just regular kind. They might have been wild, but, I, you know, I'm not, not really positive. It was probably around 1960 or so, and it, it they were just incredible. And uh, so that was stuck in my mind until, you know, I got old enough to get my own tank and, and uh, take it from there. And they probably took over since then, but I've always had other fish other than angelfish in addition. So, Steve, before we get into the, the topic of, you know, selling online, the history of selling online, I'm just trying to get uh, our, our listeners a, a nice pr- perspective of you. So, angelsplus.com, as it stands now, you're extremely well-known in the hobby for award-winning angelfish that you either sell individually or by breeding pairs. And you're, you're known for not necessarily being featured in a pet store. You sell direct, and you have the best angels and you have a very uh methodical proven process on how you do that do you want to explain 
You, you mean as far as the process of how I breed them, or, or are you asking about how I sell them, or what? Well, I, mean, I think uh, the rep again, where you get your reputation from, and then your your breeding process. I think that's uh, really what makes you unique. I can't really speak too much of the reputation because I'm, you know, I'm I'm not on the receiving end of that. Uh -huh. I, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't. You got a pretty good people, reputation, my friend. Pretty good. Yeah, if people if people say stuff, usually the only things I hear are the bad things. Of you course. Because. <laughs> It's funny when you when you're when you're doing something like this, you'll actually be surprised at how many people who also breed angelfish want to see you do poorly, and say lots of really bad things about you. So I would have guessed my reputation was bad by what I hear from from customers who call me to give me the latest scoop on what somebody's saying about me. But uh, you know, it, it that's kind of to be expected on any you know any competitive situation. Well, that's how you know you're doing well. So. Yeah. I kind of look, that's the way I look at it. I said, if they're coming after me, it must be because, you know, they're trying to get to where I am or something like that. I, I don't really know, but, you know, that's that's just the way I think about it, and that way it doesn't bother me. So as far as the, the process, you're, at least how I've known you before uh, I was in, introduced to your website, is I, I knew of you going on fish forums and uh, doing uh, some homework on some of the best quality and unique um, variations of angelfish. And if you go on your website, I think uh, the, you know, most stuff that attracts me to, to you is you have these extremely brilliant koi angelfish. Uh, you have to be an expert on, uh, on breeding these variations. Well, you know, it, I'm not, I'm not so sure I would put myself as, as an expert or anything like that. I, all I know is that I have a lot of experience and, you know, experience does teach you a lot, especially when you're in a hobby where, you know, when I was a kid, there wasn't a lot of people doing this kind of thing that, that could teach you anything. Um, books that you could buy were far and few between and they had very basic information. You kind of learned either from yourself or from your friends who were doing it with you. And, and I did, fortunately, you know, I, it's funny, only in New York is, you know, well, 40 years ago, it was 20,000 people. Today, it's more like 10, but uh, it's, it's, so it's dying. But it, it, at 20,000 people, it had something like eight or nine fish rooms with more than 50 tanks a piece in it. And you just, that's just unheard of. It was unheard of at that time, anywhere in the country that that small of a population would have that many people interested in fish. Um, in fact, another guy in town, Dave Lasnick, he, uh, he became a good friend of mine and he was absolutely superb at breeding fish and he did mostly guppies, but he got into angelfish when I did, you know, when I started doing a lot of them and, and, and he, he got into it and he became expert, in my opinion, expert at doing them and doing them well. And so we could share information, we could share tips, we could do lots of things. And we did a lot of things together. In fact, we started Angels Plus together. And uh, he decided to get out of it when I decided I wanted to go full time on it. So, um, but but we we're, we've been great friends all these years, and and so I've had I've had some resources to to help with my learning, but it's nothing like today. It's nothing like getting on the internet and talking to 400 breeders of angelfish and getting their opinions. Um, there was none of that, and uh, so I did have a bit of a head start by having some you know, a very active aquarium society in town with friends who were doing well breeding fish. But a lot of it was trial and error, learning, experimenting. And so what I what I found out was that a lot of the stuff written in the books is just plain false. It's just it's just completely not true. How it got there, I don't know if it was because the guy was amateur at it, was guessing or if he was repeating something that he heard and didn't know if it was true or not. 
but I found out that there's so much that wasn't true that I did so many different experiments so that I could try to figure out what worked and what didn't work that I kind of, I kind of, you know, eliminated a lot of the things that didn't work, at least didn't work well for me to the point where I got a lot of stuff accumulated over the years. And when you do something for 50 years, it you just naturally, eventually, I mean, I learn every single year you get, you get better. And, uh, you know, I learned things this year. I'll learn things next year. I, it, you never stop learning if you're still interested in investigating different things. And so I, for me, it's just a time in the hobby that's kind of accumulated to the point where I learned enough to produce nice fish. So you gave us a perspective before talking about your experience when you again you started in the 80s you started getting more tanks and breeding more you were uh, again you said you started with pet stores you know what led up to you posting anything online well actually it was kind of funny i i I did i did the pet store thing for quite a while in fact at one time i was selling i think i'd say we were selling about 1500 angelfish a week and we had a little circuit we would you know get in my van on the weekends and as actually at the time there was three of us doing it and uh we would we all did our varieties in our different rooms and we combined them and went to the you know i'd call the shops up and they i take the orders and we'd drive to the shops and we we distribute all those fish and it it went really well because it was during a time frame when there was a, what they call the angelfish plague it was really bad and, it, and shops could not keep fish alive but they could keep ours alive if they did what what we told them they could keep them alive and so we sold a lot of fish at prices that were probably five times higher than what they could import them at. Wow. But the imports came in tiny and they died, so they didn't want them. And ours were beautiful and they were bigger and they paid for them and they sold them quickly and they made money. And so because they made money, we made money. And we did that for, you know, I don't know what it was, four or five years, three years. I, I can't even remember. But um, it came a certain time when I decided that I had so much extra junk in my room I wanted to get rid of. I'd seen all these ads in Aquarium Fish Magazine, Fama Magazine, I don't even Tropical Fish uh, Magazine. I think it was Tropical Fish Hobbyist. It was. And, uh, yep. And Fama, Fama, that were the big ones back then. And I put an ad in the back of, I think it was Fama, to get rid of some of the junk in my fish room. It wasn't even fish. It was, it was just stuff. And I sold the stuff so fast I couldn't believe it. And... I was just like, wait a minute, I'm selling junk and they want it. And, and what happens if I decide to sell other stuff, you know, the fish food that I use, the, the nets that I use, you know, and, and so I started selling dry goods and they went really, really well. And then I realized that, you know, nobody's selling fish. And well, there were a few, there were, there were a few breeders who advertised in FAMA in tfh that they would sell some fish in fact you know i had bought discus that way i'd done a few things that way and so i thought what the heck i might as well give it a shot you know when i have some extra fish i had to learn how to pack them learn how to keep them alive Uh, a lot of trial and error at the beginning because there wasn't anybody you could sit there and ask how do you do this there was no internet there was no way to get information like that you couldn't call up some guy that had been doing it for 20 years and ask him because he wasn't going to tell you. Absolutely. And not. yeah, no, I mean, this is not going to tell you. I mean, it, it was, you know, guarded secret practically. So I set up experiments. I put fish in boxes. I put thermometers in the boxes. I set them outside. I did this. I did that. I did all kinds of things until I figured out, ah, this is how you can keep and started shipping them out. And then I'd call each customer after I shipped them out and I would say how they arrived. 
and I'd take notes, you know, if they died, if they were sick, if they were cold, if they were perfect, you know. And so eventually I learned what worked and uh, it, it just kind of grew from there. And it was almost by accident that, you know, it went from I'm, I'm selling fish wholesale for, you know, relatively low prices uh, to selling fish retail online at relatively high prices. Um, I think I was selling koi angelfish in uh, 1987, 1988 for $12 a piece. Back then, that was like... 50 bucks today or something like that and they were nickel sized i mean they were little and you just that was unheard of but it was because i could open up a a nationwide market for fish that nobody had seen and when they see a new fish like that they go "Hmm, i want that and i literally sold tens of thousands of them you know doing that type of thing which morphed from magazine ads to you know a website I, I think the first time I ever ever saw your ad, Steve, is I was paging through the back of Tropical Fish Hobbies magazine in the '80s, and there was probably three people. And I I want to say I think it was I saw you, and I think I might have saw Jack Watley, and I might have saw a couple of, of uh, trans shippers that were advertising in the backs. Uh, people like Z Fish, um, Dolphin International, I think was doing it at the time and stuff. So, but there was very very few people. You look back in there. They had the, the little highlights where they say, like, you know, livestock supplies and stuff. And you go under livestock, there would only be four or five people. Yeah, there was there was a few breeders, of, uh, but not with, not with angelfish. But there were a few breeders, like I said, I bought fish online uh, one, in the early 80s, uh, maybe 70s. Um, there, was, there was a lady in California that was, uh, she was selling a, uh, I can't remember the name of her company, but uh, she was selling a little red-headed I can't remember even the name of the what, what she called it, but it was basically a gold blushing angelfish that had a little red dot on its head, you know, and they, it, or at least she called it red. It was probably just orange, but um, they were blushing and they were white bodied with this nice bright orange spot on the top of their head. And Dave, Dave Lasnick bought some from her. He'd remember her name in a heartbeat, but I don't remember her name. And uh, anyway, um, we ended up getting some fish from her and, uh, we uh, got discus from Jack Watley. Got you know bought, bought them from a few different places that were doing it online, but the but the but the angelfish and the person that was in California, I believe they were importing those fish from uh, Southeast Asia somewhere. Uh, but there were no really domestic breeders of angelfish that were advertising in the magazines at that time. And but the, but it was starting to explode in the 80s. There was a little there was an organization called the Fish Breeders Guild. Uh, that was started by uh, Larry Desiano, who was, who was a very, he, he was also a local guy, and he he was a big-time fish breeder, very, very intelligent guy with lots of information. And he decided he wanted to set up a trading operation across the country where people would just trade fish or offer fish for sale through this bulletin that he mailed out. You know, so you got it in your mail once a month. And so that's how I was shipping out my first angelfish was actually through that bulletin. And uh, But still, I didn't consider that, you know, being in the business, I could just consider that as a you know hobbyist trading or selling fish at nominal amounts of money. Well, he... And uh, shortly after that fish breeders killed thing kind of died was when I put the ads in the magazines and, and you know, went from there. So when did you decide that you're going to get angelsplus.com? And was it called something before angelsplus.com? No, it wasn't. Um, the, the, the name of the company from the beginning was Angels Plus. And 
you know, when I joined or when I got on the internet, you could easily get your name.com because there weren't very many people on there. So it just made sense for me to get my name.com. What I should have gotten was angelfish.com and then redirected everything that came in there to my site, you know, to angelsplus.com because that would have been available when I did it. And I didn't think of doing it because I didn't know there were people out there buying uh, .com names and selling them for $10,000, you know, three years later. Yeah, you got to so, go with what your brand was at the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it just it just didn't occur to me the real reason for, you know, why you should name your, your website the way you do. But anyway, I ended up with, with angelsplus.com and, uh, you know, it was just repeating my name. So you got the idea, again, from seeing just, again, content online. Hey, I already do these magazines, bulletin boards. Why can't I just post something online and, and, and try that method? Is that where the real idea came from? Well, that's how I got it. That's how I that's how I did the ads in the magazine. But online, it was actually different. I had a customer who was a computer expert. And, you know, he was, you know, every now, I mean, back then it was, you talked to everybody on the phone, whereas today I don't talk to anybody on the phone. Isn't that wonderful? It, it, well, it, I can't do business today on phone. It's just, it's too impossible. It, it, back then, I didn't have as many sales. I had time to spend on the phone, and I did. I spent a lot of time on the phone. And this guy was a computer expert. His name was uh, Bill Dawes. And uh, he was oh, he was like 70-some years old back then, and he, he knew how to design websites. And he goes, I'll build you a website. He says, I'll charge you. And I can't even remember what it was, 500 bucks, something like that. I think I gave him some fish in addition to that and, you know, whatever. And he designed angelsplus.com, the very first website. It was one of them really crude looking things. But back then I thought it was great. But, you know, digital cameras had barely hit the market. They were crummy. You, basically, you took your, your, your film camera, you took pictures of your fish, and then you scanned them in order to get your digital image on your website if you wanted it to look like anything other than garbage and that was after you probably went down to the drugstore and developed the film you bought i bought slide film slide and, and that's expensive yeah and that's you, not cheap and so and, and, and i'm telling you i sometimes take 200 pictures to get one decent picture of a fish and, and uh, back then i was far more careful i mean i didn't just click 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 i I waited till it was in the exact position I that I had to hope I had my flash set right, and I had to hope there wasn't no reflection. And I probably got one usable picture out of every 30 or so. So I'd be spending a roll of film and developing to get, uh, you know, maybe 15 bucks to get one usable slide. And and as far as slides, I had, a, I had a printed catalog back then. And as far as putting a slide in that catalog, it was maybe one out of 200 that were good enough to go in the catalog. So it was an expensive process of, of using film to, to digital, digitalize it to get it into the into the website. And but what it was was every time I had a new picture to put up, which when you're doing fish is almost constantly, I had to I had to call Bill Dawes up and say, Bill, how much to put this on my website? <laughs> you know, and it was like fifteen bucks a picture to put that up. You know, I says this has got to stop. I said I I said tell you what. Uh, I'm going to pay you to teach me how to do this because I can't pay you to do my website every day that I need to change. And basically he gave me some pointers and then I started getting uh, some books and reading on how to do this. Anyway, I learned how to, I, I learned how to do the programming back then to get a website up and how to at least fix how to at least change my own so that when I got a new picture, I could put it up there. If I had a new paragraph, I could change it. I, I could do whatever I wanted with it. And that's so that, 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 
got me so that I knew how to do websites. And since then, I have built every website that I've had. And I've had probably four or five changes since then, you know, as far as brand new websites. And I've done them myself. The one I, that I currently have is probably the easiest one because that's a little bit more of a canned solution. You, you, you know, I, I buy it from a company that produces the shopping cart and then I just have to put my all my pictures and information and stuff on it. But uh, uh, it, it was something that was hard enough to do that not very many people did it and not very many people who did do it did a very good job at it. So that also gave me a little bit of a competitive advantage. It, it kind of sounds, it reminds me of my dad telling me how he used to go to school and walk uphill both ways in the snow over the power line. This is kind of Steve. I, Steve's, I went to the same school. Yeah, this is kind of Steve's rendition of, <laughs> of how he got going. I, I'm tired just thinking about it, man. That's hey, a lot of work. You know he's an expert, though, because he didn't you know, insinuate that he had to do anything with tubes. So he's on points. Yeah. So what no, I, no, no tubes. No vacuum no, tubes? No, no vacuum tubes. No. <laughs> so no, but I did grow up watching my dad try to fix our TV by replacing tubes without anything to test them with. He would just buy them and put new ones in. <laughs> my, my dad just whacked the side of the TV. That, that didn't help. Yeah, we did that lots, but that didn't work. All <laughs> aluminum foil and the rabbit ears. There you go. So what I did before the interview, uh, Steve, is I did some homework on, again, the history of your website. So I'm not just an aquarium guy. My normal profession is an IT expert. So I dug up some history on your website. And, again, I can see the purchase date of Angels Plus was 1996 in February. Now, I did a lot more homework trying to see if there's any way I can find some sort of snapshot or archive that something was captured in 1996, which blows my mind that there's actually snapshots out there of something in 1996. There is? The first thing I could scrape up from your website was in October of 1996, the first year that you started. So I'm assuming it took the guy some time to build your website. So this is probably... No, no, no. He he built it really quick. It was up early 90s. Gotcha. So he probably had it done by the next month, March. So this is, again, the closest thing I could find to the start of your website. And I was able to pull up quite a bit of information from your original web page in 1996. Would that be like just the main page? I got more than the main page. I was actually able to get a catalog of what you sold with some pictures that you took with, uh, again, flash photography. And let me tell you, it is a fantastic read. Um, Again, I sent you a picture of your your old logo. I don't know if you have that saved anywhere. You know, you you did send that, and I thought it came off on one of my catalogs, but I might have used the same logo on my catalog. I can't remember. Certainly possible, but just for the giggles, I'd like to go over a couple things on your website. And right up front, you know, you had... uh, you had uh, details of you know how what quality you have, um, pricing, but the variety is really what I want to go into. So you sold even from the get go a very um, large batch, and th- it surprises me that in '96 some of these strains were uh, you know out. So you must have been on the bleeding edge of some of these. So just to well, you know, here's the surprising thing: only a couple strains have come out since then. One is albino. And the other is the gene for for the blue that's everybody's kind of hot on now. That's it. So it's funny you say that because you show that you're introducing these new blue strains on this page. <laughs> so in October of yeah, 19- but, but, but they got, you got to realize though that that blue is a different blue than the blue that's out right. now. It's a different gene. 
And there are some uh, some pictures of it, so they do get an impression of it. But the, the ones I want to point out, because you have, of course, the regular silver, marble, zebra, smoky, gold, and you even do have a on the bottom. It's like your your pièce de résistance is an albino strain that you have. But the ones that I point out that blew my mind is I only see in books. The leopard strain, you have like a blue, beautiful, silky leopard strain on here, and there's a picture of it, and it just blows my mind. It's red, beautiful blue hues, and just amazing pattern I have not seen, but only in books. Yeah, it actually, what's amazing is that that actually was a beautiful fish that nobody wanted to buy. Amazing. They just couldn't, they couldn't, they couldn't picture it, I guess. You know, I mean, it, it didn't sell well, and I couldn't possibly tell you why it wouldn't, but it, it, it really didn't. And today it would sell even better because you'd, you'd add that the new blue gene that's out there to it and you would end up with a, an even uh, better looking fish, in my opinion. So, no, some so fish, it... I, I actually got rid of the smoky gene out of my hatchery. I haven't had it for 15 years because and that's what went into creating that fish. And it's because nobody would buy them. You know, I'm looking at the, at the website here with Rob's and, and I, I see something that I don't see very often anymore. Um, the German blue blushing. What, what happened to those? I mean, you used to be able to find them quite readily, and now they're, well, they're tough to find. The, the names are changing a little bit because they kind of gotten confusing. When the new gene for blue came out, it was like, okay, and what do we got a blue blue blushing? Well, German was just a name that was attached to it, and quite honestly, I don't know that any of these fish have, came from Germany. So why that name ever got on there, I don't really know, but that's how I bought them. I bought them as German blue blushers, and you know, it, it, it just, in my opinion, you can create that fish by, by, by putting blushing in any silver angel fish and you'll get, you'll get something similar to that. And then when you add the blue gene to it, it will end up being more iridescent than, than it would be otherwise. So it's a fish that's been around for a long time and today it's still around. It's just that you don't see them quite as often because people want to add, you know, the new gene that, that, that expresses more blue to the same fish, which just makes it look a little lighter gray with a little more iridescence on it. So another thing on here is not just the, the varieties, which, again, we can certainly go over. There's a lot more here in the list. You had quite the extensive list when you first started doing this. But also just the, the price point of the, for the quality that you have. You started selling uh, just the silvers for $5 each, and this was over 20 years ago. And these, you know, really beautiful choice ones for $10 each. Just to show that, uh, you know, in 1996, this was literally the uh, probably one of the best you could you could find. As far as what the prices? Uh, as far as uh, selection. As far as selection for the price. Oh, oh yeah, selection wise, back then I my my thought process was have as many varieties as possible. That way, a person's going to order from you. That way, get everything in one spot, so they don't have to pay for shipping multiple times. And so I had many many varieties and. Uh, it's just that after a while, um, I finally learned that too many tanks were taken up by fish that didn't sell. And, I, you know, 90% of sales came from, you know, 30% of the varieties. And so I got rid of a lot of varieties for that reason. It was just economics. It was just, um, you know, you're just kind of forced into it because it was difficult to keep something available all the time if people weren't buying it because... You know, you couldn't just let it grow up to adult size and sell it. You had to have it out of there by a certain age. And if you didn't, you had to wholesale it. And and people don't realize when you've got, got 400 plus tanks, the, each tank has to pay its own rent. And if the tank's just sitting there not paying its rent, you know, out the door you go and let's get something in here that will pay the rent. 
Yeah. I had a different uh, way of breeding when I was breeding wholesale. I, I had fewer pairs and very, very more, many tanks put to grow out. When I went to retail and I was selling extremely good fish and I was trying to improve the strategy, like if you could see koi in 1985 and compare them to koi in 2015, it, it, you wouldn't even know they're the same fish. And what that is, is that's, that's, that's Dave Lasnik and myself taking 40 years of our life, selectively breeding them to the point where they got good. But the only way you can do that is if you have a majority of your tanks into grow outs for pairs. So if I have 100 tanks set aside for koi, and actually at one time I probably had closer to 200 tanks set aside for koi, 175 of those tanks had adults in them. And the reason that that was is that's the only way that I could select extremely good fish that were extremely colorful, the best shapes, the best behaviors, that laid the most eggs. I mean, I got 2,000 egg spawns out of koi. And... It, it, the only way you could do that is if you set up 100 pairs and picked the best one and kept it. And that's what we did. And so it changed the, the, the dynamics of selling. Went from raising very few small fish for sale, but selling them at a much higher price from the prior dynamic of wholesale of you don't care what you got. You raise it up to a certain size, as many of them as you can, and you sell it. Get them out of there. And I hated wholesale. I hated doing that. I loved selecting fish. I loved selecting for quality, for color, for shape, for behavior, for all that stuff. It was fun. That was what that's what that's what I liked. And that's why I like guppies and swordtails and goldfish and other fish like that where you select for qualities that people like versus just farming them out in numbers. That's that bored me to death. And it didn't take me long to switch to where I realized I really love the retail, but the retail is t totally different. If you've got a few pairs and, and tons of fry, you're not going to be very good at retailing. More details that I pulled up from your website, and it's pretty incredible. I'll make sure to send send you this so you have this uh, for, for fun because, you know, looking back over 20 years ago to what you, you used to do, that's got to be a lot of nostalgia. But just to go in the process again, starting this out, it looks like payments were done phone in the, you can send a mail for convenience, fax, and you also did by email at this time in 1996, which very impressive. You show how you do COD, um, you know, uh, money uh, money in the mail, or even credit card back then. Again, there was no electronic swipe, but you had the numbers to do the transactions. So that at least seems pretty straightforward. But you know, how did shipping work when you first started shipping fish? Well, I pretty much the same way it works today. I mean, the only thing is nothing was automated. So, you know, we, 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 you have to package the fish up into a, you know, a warm container, put a, you know, put a heat pack in it and, you know, get it out a uh, next day shipping to wherever you were going. And, and we did next day shipping back then. I mean, UPS, I mean, I've been ahead of UPS account since, you know, probably 1987 or something like that, or 85. And, uh, it's just, everything was written by hand. You, you, printed your labels out on your own printer. You uh, had a UPS book that, that was a log and you, you, you hand wrote this log. It was incredible. I, I think back and I, it's like, it was craziness. And, and if somebody actually came to your place and wanted to pay with a credit card, you had those little hand swipe machines where you had to take this thing and push it across the card that you pressed some carbon paper onto it. And it, it was just all kinds of archaic ways of doing stuff. Everything took longer. Everything took long. So I, I sometimes wonder how I could make a living doing it. It was so labor intensive. Yeah, when you get, you know, if you 
consider how much you're getting paid per hour at that point, you probably want to shoot yourself. Paperwork. Yeah. So I'm 29 years old, and I just found out about those carbon swiping machines. Oh, serious? For the very first time. I went to a local <laughs> lumber yard, and I handed my credit card, and I felt, I don't know, I, it was just something from the Stone Age. They pull out this he giant violated metal thing. <laughs> they, they throw it on the counter, just like, wham. I'm like, what is that? Give me your credit card. I'm like, what, what do you mean, give me your credit card? Don't you have something to swipe? And they just give me your credit card. He slaps it down on this contraption and then pulls it back. And it, I'm thinking he's going to cut my credit card because it looks like this you know, mini paper cutter. He throws this thing back, and it just like takes a bar and swipes across the top of the machine. And I was like, what? And sure enough, it was like a little carbon footprint that rubbed off of the uh, etching of the credit card. Because I've never understood why they had the numbers raised in my wallet. Well, that's why. So they could press it and get the numbers on this carbon paper. I felt like I was just watching a real piece of history in I front thought of that me. stuff was illegal now. I didn't, I didn't know I could still do <laughs> I that. I didn't know that was available. Oh, I had to yeah, do some like hard Googling on this stuff. And they, yeah, I, he put it to the order. Uh, sure enough, I saw like... Oh, two weeks later, I saw the statement finally hit my bank. I, I'm going to take Robbie oh, wow. out later, and I'm, I'm going to take him. I'm going to see if I can find a, a pay phone booth. And for those of you young people listening, <laughs> <laughs> that was a phone in a box alongside the road. But hey, hey, now that one I had. I grew up in a very small town, and I think they got rid of it like nine years ago. <laughs> we still actually have the phone booth, but the phone is part is missing. But they have the phone book in it. That's called a bus yeah, stop, Adam. Station. That's called a bus stop. No, no, stop. no, no, no. <laughs> you uh, think that's bad? When when I was in college, I had to walk from my apartment about a half a mile to a phone booth to call home because I didn't have a phone in, in the apartment, and th- that was the only way you made a call back then. You went to a phone booth. And it, it was uphill both ways. I, it, it, it was in Colorado. <laughs> Every, everything's a mountain. <laughs> So if you want to have fun, if you're anywhere from 30 years old uh, and above, do this to your millennial or Gen Xers or whatever you call them nowadays. Go online. You can still find these. They, they make a few remakes or few and far between. But you can go on eBay and you can find yourself a rotary telephone. Get a rotary telephone. And if you punish your kid or whatever else, make them make calls. Say, dog, I need to call someone. Use the phone and then set it down and just watch them. You just... They'll look mind. at you, they'll look at that, and just watch the fun. Just say, <laughs> if you can make a telephone, I'll give you 20 bucks to go to the movie theater. <laughs> Do that to your kids for me, please. So if there's any stories of that, message us. But I've seen this uh, time and time again, just, well, where's the buttons? <laughs> I, I just saw something really interesting the other day where this grade school, it was like first and second graders, uh, coming up with inventions. And one of the inventions were um, a telephone that you would mount on the wall because his mom could never find the cordless phone at home. And, and so he came up, he came up with this great idea. Let, let's, let's put a cord on it and tie it to the wall. So it's always in the same spot. And I what bought, is it, what's the saying? What goes around comes around. Yeah. <laughs> something like that. You know, I, I just saw something really interesting on, they're talking about things that don't exist on cars anymore. And one being a cigarette lighter, another being a, an ashtray, another being an antenna. Uh, hand cranks on cars, you know, so you have to actually roll the window up with your muscles. And you you, you, you forget about this stuff, and it's just really kind of interesting, and, and it puts in perspective uh, your age when you hear stuff like this. So, so remind me. <laughs> 
So, Steve, out of the things we talked about, I think we got a real capture of how you started. Clearly, uh, your success grew. You have, again, peaked was 475 tanks. Did you have employees? Well, um, I've had my family pretty much has worked with me for quite a bit. And then uh, Dave Lasnick, who I've you know spoke to about you before about before he uh he helped out at times and uh you know so i i, I had help it wasn't just me doing the tanks um i did have a, a couple guys who part-time changed water stuff like that but over the years it's actually gone in reverse uh, most of those people are gone i do almost exclusively everything with the fish just myself now and uh the dry goods i don't even touch them i, I don't even I don't do anything with them. I, I have people who take care of that. Um, so I spend my whole day, you know, in the fish room doing fish, you know, packing orders for the fish, you know, doing all that kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm, whereas years ago I used to do a, a little bit of everything. Now I, I just do the fish and that's, that's it. Well, run us through a typical day, Steve. I mean, I know you're a busy, busy guy, and, and we are so excited. And thank you again for joining us for this podcast. I know you're a busy, busy, busy guy. What, what's your typical day look like? And how many, I mean, are you doing this seven days a week? Or are you trying to cut back on Saturday, oh, Sunday? Oh, no, no, there's no such thing as doing fish without doing it. So it's not seven days a week. It's 365 days a year. He's got to milk the cows. That's right. It, it, I, I mean, it's it's a very similar analogy. You basically, if you're if you're you're a dairy farmer, you don't hire anyone to do that because you can't afford to hire someone to milk your cows unless you're a giant farm. So you know, if you're the average guy with 75 cows, you you're 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 living in the barn. In the barn at 5 a.m. and 5 p.m. every single day, every day of your life. And I'm very very much the same. I mean, some people think that. Ah, uh, you can you can get away for a week, blah blah blah. Well, you know something, you can, but you can't do it and have nice fish. Yeah, it's going to cost you a fortune. Well, you can The reason you can't have nice fish is because you can't get people who, who can, properly feed them without destroying. The angelfish have the most delicate fins, of any fish that there is. If that water quality isn't absolutely pristine, they're going to curl. They're going to chop. They're going to bend. They're going to fungus. They're going to get, and then they're going to grow back crooked and they're going to be ugly as crap. And what happens is I hire a person. I show them how to feed. I, I show them five times. I watch them feed. I correct them a thousand times. And then I let them go and I come back and the fish are all shit because they can't do it. And then the beatings start. Well, I beat my head against the wall. <laughs> I'm stupid enough to think that I could get somebody to come in and feed the fish properly. Fish act hungry. They wiggle in front of the glass, and people think, well, i got to give them food. Well, a lot of times, they're just pecking the food, and it's going to the bottom of the tank. Right. They're not even eating it. And then it's just rotting. And then when it rots, it rots their fins. And so, you, you, you know, angelfish, you, you have to have someone who really knows what they're doing if you're going to get long, tall, pointed fins that are twice as long as the fish is tall. You know, you're going to get fins that are perfectly straight, no kinks, no bends, uh, no deformities. To get that and to get good color on them, it requires very precise feeding. It's the most important thing, taking care of angelfish. There's nothing even comes close to feeding. Feeding is 98% of success with angelfish, doing it properly and doing it reliably and doing it consistently every single day. And most people fail in that area. And I couldn't hire anyone who could do it, never could. Couldn't get my, my own daughter who worked for me. It was a very smart kid. 
um, she could not, the only way I could get her to feed so that, that that fish didn't have a problem was that if I had her feed gro grossly underfeed a feeding or two each day, I said, you know, you feed this much and don't feed, feed any more to, to, you know, to any tank with this many fish and it would be way less than they could eat. And then if she did that, she was okay. But if I just let her go for two months, I'd come back in and she'd be feeding five times that amount because they just gradually up it because it's just a natural thing. They're hungry. I give them a little more. And, and so you, I have just found that it takes a knack. It takes a, a certain observation skill to be able to properly feed. And I, and I myself ruin tanks of fish every now and then because you just can't always be perfect with these fish. It just, it's just not possible. And how often do and you feed? Do you feed how twice? Often what? Do you feed twice a day or how many, how many times do you feed a day? Well, th that's the funny thing. You can be successful feeding. I don't care if you're feeding once a day, you can be successful. Or if you're feeding 10 times a day, you can be successful. What the key factors are with feeding is what's the temperature because they eat way more at, at 85 degrees than they do at 75. And when I and I'm not meaning 10% more, 20% more. I'm meaning like 300% more. And I've actually have some tanks in the wintertime. I've got them at 68 degrees, and you know at that temperature they might eat a flake a day. You know, and hardly anything. You know, they just don't eat much the lower the temperature. And if you give them too much food too often, you will ruin them at any temperature. And so the key is to know what temperature you're feeding. The top rows at 80, the bottom rows at 73. You feed those two rows differently because my room's heated. I don't have any. The number of tanks I have, you don't have aquarium heaters in each tank. Yeah, you can't, just, you can't afford that many heaters. You can't afford to pay the Well, it would just it'd be just impossible. You'd, 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 the electricity would be incredible and... And so you don't do it that way. You heat the room. And I happen to have a hatchery that's above ground on a, on a concrete slab um, that is very cold in the wintertime. And so the bottom tanks are very cold and the top tanks are, you know, where I want them. Well, the bottom tanks, I usually put in fish that, you know, I don't care if they grow fast. Cold does not hurt them if you feed them properly. They just grow slower. They age slower, which means they live longer. Uh, you keep a fish at 68 degrees, you probably keep it till it's 20 years old. I mean, it's just it'll just live a long, long, long life at that temperature, um, which is common with uh, cold-blooded animals. So you gotta, you, you have to know that this row of tanks gets fed this amount with this many fish in a tank, and so it's, it, it, it takes experience to get this right. Even I get it wrong because it's, it's just too easy to mess up on a tank. And so um, hiring somebody to do that is almost impossible, which is why I don't take vacations. I, I mean, I'm I'm up on Christmas morning. The first thing I do is I run to the hatchery. I don't go to the Christmas tree. I, I, I'm in the hatchery. What, and ta what time do you start in the morning? Well, um, it used to be about 4, 4.30. Now I'm probably, you know. Not so the milking the cow bit was pretty accurate. Pretty accurate, yeah. It, well, no, I, I was I worked a lot longer day than a dairy farmer would. I mean, he'd, <laughs> oh, oh. he'd be done. He'd Shout get up at 5 and milk cows, and he'd milk them again at 5. And he, he was done. I'm I'm usually up until eleven working on orders. Do I mean, I was I was not only just doing fish, but I was doing, you know, I was do, running the business in addition to that. And I mean, there's just as many hours to run the business as there is to take care of the fish. Well, and, I'm impressed and so, that you started the family. When did you have time to have children? Uh, no, yeah, I don't even remember. <laughs> <laughs> they gave him a quarter. That's right. You know, 
you know, it's, I'm, you know, and it certainly was not ideal. I mean, it was cer certainly not an ideal. I mean, I really wouldn't wish this on anybody. It, <laughs> it's the kind of thing where, um, you got to have some kind of weird short circuit in your brain to do what I'm doing because you, you got to like it to that degree or you just wouldn't do this for 40 years. I mean, I mean, basically I've been taking care of fish for over 50 years. Yeah. The... And, and when I said, I've never, since I was eight years old, had less than six tanks. And, uh, even in college, I had more tanks than that because I went around campus and I, talk to different uh, administrators of the buildings to let me set up a tank in their in their building as a display tank and they pay for everything and I'll take care of it and I had you know I went to Colorado State which had 23,000 students at the time and there was buildings everywhere and I had tanks all over campus and I and I so I got to play with fish for free and but I did that you know for for fun in college that's how short circuit my brain was and so I've been doing this my whole life and I don't think very many people would do that. And, and so you've got to pick a small number of tanks that you think you can take care of, do it as a hobby and not be too serious about, uh, you know, especially angelfish because they're just so delicate, so hard to raise really, really good ones that uh, you, you can't overload yourself with tons of tanks and, and expect you're going to make it because most people just aren't going to work that number of hours on it and, and be happy with it. And, uh, you know, I, I was just unusual in that respect that it didn't bother me. So moving forward in your Angels Plus history, there's a couple milestones that I think I'd like your opinion on. So when you started, people had independent websites for different niches, and that's really when the Internet was building in the 94 to 98 range, right? Then in early 2000s is when you started seeing, you know, social medias pop up, and then we saw all the niche websites. And what I'd like to point out is, Nowadays, you know, you have the ebays.com where you can sell virtually anything. There's limitations where you can't do nicotine, you can't do, you know, not safe for work content to a limit, and you can't do live products. But there are other websites such as the eBay of fish, Aquabid. And Aquabid, if I'm, again, I'm trying to find history on these guys. They, they came out somewhere in the mid-2000s. Did you see any uh, sort of, you know, change in the market because of that? Or did you yourself ever use some of those? Well, you know, what's funny is when Aquabid first came out, you know, I was one of the first guys on the, on, on the owner's mailing list. And I, I think I was one of the very first people to join it. And I sold a few, I think I might've even sold one of his first auctions. I mean, I, I put fish up right away. And uh, I only think I put up maybe 10 auctions or something like that total. It, it, and, what I found out was that it was attracting a different clientele. They were more beginning hobbyists, more people who were looking for a really low price. And I found out that if I sold a fish on, on Aquabit, it, it was way less than if I sold it on my website. And so I thought, well, I don't want to do that. That's <laughs> you know, just, that doesn't make any sense unless I can't sell on my website and I could. So I didn't do Aquabit. I would buy fish occasionally on Aquabit, but never angelfish. I always bought things like guppies or swordtails or something like that that I wanted, um, uh, especially that were different. Uh, as far as angelfish, I've never bought – the last time I bought a fish from anyone in the United States that was an angelfish was in 1989. Um, since then, every variety I got, I either imported it from overseas – 
or I uh, took a wild fish to keep it going and make it strong. So I was crossing wilds. It started in 1990. I crossed wild scolari into the domestic strains to strengthen them. That's how I got my stock from, from wearing down as I, I, I got the vigor back with wild blood. It would take a couple generations of inbreeding that back and forth to get the uh, color to back to where I wanted it, but it worked very well. And it's, st it's still what I do today. I don't buy angelfish unless there's a gene that I need. And then typically um, back then, at least, and when I bought a new strain, I was buying, you know, a box of 50 of them from Taiwan or someplace where they were breeding them. What, what was your quarantine so I, process? I, I, I just never buy them from anybody in the country here. Yeah, I, I know you have a, a really uh, crazy quarantine process, but when you bring those fish in, I, they, they don't even go into your, your normal room, do they? No, I my quarantine is extreme, but it's extreme because I have too much money tied up in the stock. So I can't, I can't put anything into my hatchery because... I would risk losing tens of thousands of dollars worth of fish and I can't, I can't do that. And so I have a separate quarantine room at my house that I put uh, uh, the fish in and they never leave that room. They never leave that room. Um, if they grow up, they grow up there. I breed them there and then I take the eggs from them and I sterilize the eggs and take them to the hatchery. Wow. And that's how I get, that's how I get the stuff into my hatchery so that it's clean. And, and, and I've been doing this for, I don't know, 25 years. So um, it's it's just a technique that works for me. It's nothing anybody else is going to do because it takes sometimes two to three years for me to get a fish from that, you know, to get a fish into my hatchery uh, from my quarantine room by way of breeding. And first thing I do when they come in is I treat them for everything under the sun so I can keep them alive. And then I, you know, they're stressed to heck. And then I have to, you know, if, if they're small, I have to grow them up and then I have to breed them and then I have to take the eggs and and remove them and then i have to grow those eggs up to adults so they're breeding so i actually have breeding stock in the hatchery so it's a long process and you know, like i said i don't think anybody else is going to do that and, and how do you typically sterilize the eggs uh before you take them over to your hatchery well it's basically a rinsing process and then you 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 put them into a uh, a solution of a very strong potassium permanganate for a while so you rinse them rinse them very thoroughly like i take them out run them under a faucet under pretty high pressure water for for a minute so there's nothing stuck to them and then i put them in a bucket with potassium permanganate for a certain length of time and then i take them and, and put them in a hatching container that's sterile take that to, to, to you know take that out of there there and take that to the hatchery i'm and, surprised uh, the potassium that works i mean that uh i've heard is pretty it, strong stuff it is and you so it's a it's a dose time uh, you know it's a it, it's it's something where you can kill them real easy. So, you know, you have to experiment so you can figure. And this is how I know that it works is what I do is um, before the fish, um, before when I even when I take them to the hatchery eggs, you know, I grow them up. I put them into the hatchery. I, I let them, you know, get to get to a certain age. And, and then I take the spawn and I sacrifice a few fish under a microscope. I, I dissect them to make sure there's nothing in them. And, uh, you know, it, I have to do that in order to know if they have a disease. They have something. And I don't have to do that anymore because I know my procedure works. But I'm talking about back at the beginning when I wasn't sure if it was going to work. I had to I had to find out if I was bringing parasites in there because I didn't want to wipe out my whole hatchery again. And uh, or, or or anything else I could identify. And I've never been I've never been able to find anything. So, um you know, I feel, I believe that my procedure is a good one, and it, it works very well. 
and fortunately I hardly ever bring fish in, so I don't have to do it very often. And, uh, you know, I just, I, I cross to my wild fish, which I have had in the hatchery for forever. I mean, some of my wild pears are eight, 10 years old because I don't turn them over. I'm not trying to selectively breed them. I'm trying to give them to live as long as possible so that I can keep that closest to wild generation stock for as long as I possibly can. And so I've had fish over 30 years that are only to F3. So, wow. you know, yeah, I mean, it basically 10 years per generation. And, uh, and they're still breeding at that, you know, when I stop, you know, when I decide to quit on them, I don't know if they go, they might even go to 15 years. I don't know, but, but they're still breeding it at 10 years. So, uh, but I only do that with the wild fish, the stuff that I'm selectively breeding, you know, it's quick turnover. I want to pick the next generation that's better than they are as quickly as I can. That proceed that, that progresses the line faster that way, but the wild fish aren't there to progress the line. They're there to give vigor to the line. So that's, that's kind of the, the, the overview of how that quarantine works and then how I keep my fish strong and, and, and procedures I use. So it, but it's, it's so involved that, you know, it's really only for some really large hatchery where some guy really is, has fought, you know, pathogens for years and has decided, I, I don't want to do that, anymore, which was me. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, I, I, you know, cause I'd been doing fish for at least 20 years before I finally, did, you know, figured out, okay, this is, this is the procedure I'm going to use to try to clean this up. And it worked. So, uh, average Aquarius, not a chance. Nope. So the next question I want to go over, Steve, is in you know, 2001, 9-11, shipping changed for everything coming in and out of the country. And that was really how online had to adjust. So I would love to know, you know, how did it affect you? Um, and, you know, even Jimmy's told me in the past the hassles he's had to go for international shipping. And we've had a couple of stories here on the on the show of, uh, you know, we, we all hate Delta. But uh, <laughs> over time, you know, from 96 to now, you know, how is shipping uh, – changed for you well not you bring that up it just kind of jogged my memory i i almost forgot this i for years i used to take my fish to the airport the buffalo airport which was 70 miles away from me and it was so far i only did it once a week and i had a van and i would fill that van with fish order boxes i mean I'd, it was stuffed and I would drive to that airport, and then I would go to Delta and American Airlines and U.S. Air, and I, I, every airline that had, you know, was going to that particular airport. And I was, I got up. It, in fact, I, I didn't even. It was I shipped on a Wednesday. I didn't even go to sleep that night. Every week, once a week, I was up Tuesday night, or I, I was up, yeah, Tuesday night, all night long, packing the fish because I was taking. Sometimes I was taking 40, 50 boxes of fish. I had to pack that night, and I was filling the van. So it took me the whole. Tuesday that night and then I would leave for the airport at at four in the morning because you had to get there for the first flight so I had to be there six o'clock or something I don't even remember what time it was but what happened was after a while I decided to start UPS and and you know I'd, I can't even remember if I started it because of 9-11 or if it was before 9-11 and I just said uh, they made it they made it so restrictive to go to the airports you had to become a known shipper. I, I, oh, I know what it was. I wasn't shipping. I had switched to UPS and, and I was only going to the airport occasionally. And what it was, was I went to the airport with a load of fish and I couldn't ship them out because I wasn't a known shipper, even though they all knew me, they'd seen me a thousand times. 
but I still couldn't ship them out. I had to have, I had, well, actually I did get them out, but I had to have somebody come over and inspect the boxes and all this other crap. And I finally, I just said, do I, how do I become a, a known shipper? And they gave me the procedure and I just said, and so what happens if I don't come up for like three months? Well, then you got to go through it again. And, uh, you know, I said, uh, this isn't going to happen. I'm done with the airports. The only other time I went to the airport was when I tried shipping international and I did ship some international shipments, but U.S. Fish and Wildlife were so difficult to deal with. They were basically doing everything in their power to stop me from doing this. And so I just decided it's just not worth it. So I haven't been to the airport now in probably three years, three or four years, and I don't plan to ever go again. <laughs> I was going to say it's probably the happiest three years of your life. Well, it was cer certainly nice being able to go to sleep on Tuesday nights, you know, and not have to, not have to, you know. And, and right now, I mean, there's just, I, I couldn't have I, I couldn't have kept that up. And once UPS became a viable option for shipping fish overnight, it was so much easier. Although it was more expensive for the for the customer because I could ship, you know, I could ship a hundred pounds of uh, freight out for you know sixty bucks or something, and a hundred pounds in UPS now would be about four hundred out. I mean, it would be, you know, a huge amount of money. So. Um, it, it was it was cheaper to go by the airport, but it was so hard for me to do it that because I didn't have a close by airport that uh, I just had to go uh, had to go with the UPS thing. And so UPS really hasn't been affected by 9-11 to any great degree. And I don't know why. I don't know why their whole system hasn't been attacked. You know, I mean, it seems to me that it would have been vulnerable. And it, it's just that for some reason, it's remained pretty stable on what they require over the years. In fact, they've even gotten easier because everything is by computer now and it's easy to weigh your box on electronic scale, print your label, slap it on the box, track it every step of the way. There was no tracking these things back 20 years ago. You didn't, you had no idea where your box of fish was. You kept calling your customer and say, Did you show up, you know, <laughs> you didn't know, you know, now you know where the box is. So, I mean, Shipping is pretty much the same, but the but the flow is easier, faster, and there's a lot more uh, uh, tracking ability that that really is good on my end and the customer's end. So, so for those that don't know, the you know, flight has changed from the beginning because commercial flights are in the 1950s after World War II, but commercial flight has evolved in a very short amount of time. 9/11 overnight changed everything because you know they never thought of using commercial uh, flight for any terroristic acts so there was no security um, you look at old videos smoking people were roaming around the plane you could bring anything you wanted and ship anything the only thing they cared about is if it was going to Florida it was cocaine it was very very <laughs> lax system so 9-11 changed everything and now they're looking in boxes they're trying to see exactly what's in those boxes you know they'll rip them apart in transshippers in the middle so there's a lot of risk and there's a lot of you know flight delays because of the security checks and details so the cargo has become second uh worse than second class it's bottom class it's yeah it, it, i want to say uh back in the day when it used to be northwest airlines and they had a chart in their back room and number one was passengers that was their number one priority was passengers second was luggage and then they went on and on and on, and uh, I think number three was HRs, and what HRs are is human remains. So, like, if your grandfather would pass away, let's say, in Arizona, and you need to fly him back to Minnesota, they actually um, put...
put grandpa in a box and they put him in the cargo hold and they move him. And that, that's the only thing that I can seriously say that the airlines can quickly move today because nobody wants a dead body in their back room. And even in our little airport in the last uh, 25 years or so that I've been going to the airport, I've probably helped load literally 200 bodies uh, because as I'm sitting there waiting for my fish coming in, all of a sudden uh, one of the morticians will pull up and they get priority, so I got to move my car, and they come out with a forklift with Grandpa, and uh, in a cardboard box that's kind of a, a waxy box, like a a banana box to be at a grocery store, and they load them load them up with a forklift and put them in, and and uh, the mortician's usually by himself, and he usually needs some help pushing pushing Grandpa in. But uh, going down the list, there's like seven or eight different things, and then at the very bottom is perishables, meaning tropical fish, and uh, flowers, that sort of thing. A lot of the uh, flowers that you get at the greenhouse, especially like during Valentine's Day, that all comes in on the bottom of an airplane. And that's their least concern. They do not care about your cargo. And so I can see where UPS is a very viable source because at least they take a little pride and, and can shuffle stuff around pretty quick. Well, you know, the bad part about um, the airports now, at least it was one of my, my last international shipments, they had to have a bomb squad dog come and sniff the boxes. And after that, the fish and wildlife guys came. They opened the boxes and inspected every single bag of fish. And I don't want my boxes open once they're sealed shut. I, I mean, it was like, what are you doing? These are tropical fish. It's 13 degrees in here. You're opening them up and you're stressing the hell out of them. And, and he says, well, we got to look in there and make sure you're not smuggling anything. And that it's a legal fish to ship out and all, you know, all this stuff. And I, I, I finally, I thought, this is crazy. I mean, you know, if, 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 if they really suspect that there's a bomb or something, of course, I think the fish guys just wanted to catch you shipping out a, you know, a, a, a rainbow uh, to somebody that's illegal or something like that, you know, so they could arrest you over something minor like that. But it was so disturbing to the fish that I just said, nah, this isn't, this isn't going to happen anymore. So over all the years that you've had uh, Angels Plus, you know, what's the biggest things that we mentioned a lot of points, you know, what's the biggest things that you've seen change in the market? Again, you're uh, in a very unique situation. You used to wholesale a little bit. And now, again, over the years, you've transitioned 100, almost 100 percent to retail. And your goal is not numbers. It's quality. So in your uh, niche, you know, what do you think has changed from when you started to now? It, what's the what's the biggest, biggest things? Well, the, the number one thing that I see is that I used to sell to, to guys like Jim who, who were breeding. They, they, were, they were dedicated hobbyists who had, had a thrill for producing fish, for breeding numbers, selling them to their shops, and, you know, doing that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I, I swear at least eight out of ten had to be breeders who wanted really good breeding stock. And there was a lot of them. I mean, there was a lot of them. And today, almost none of my sales go to those types of people. Almost none. Jet backyard hobbyists who have one pair and just playing with it, want their kid to see a fish spawn come up with the parents raising them. You know, a few people might have multiple tanks, but they're not hardcore breeders. They're not, they're not interested in, in, in taking this thing and setting up 12 pairs of double darks and seeing if they can get the nicest double dark blacks in the world. They, they don't care about that. They, they just want the experience of having some tropical fish and they like angel fish. And 
so it's gone from a, a, a bunch of dedicated breeders to a bunch of, of kind of inexperienced hobbyists buying fish for the most part, in, in my opinion. It, that's been the biggest change that I have seen. Um, it, on the other hand, there's some positives. Uh, today, kids don't care about spending money. So if some, some kid that's 18, 20 years old and he's got a job and he says, I, I really like guppies and what are they, 100 bucks a pair? Sure, I'll take 10 of them, you know. <laughs> Uh, Give me I his name. See if I get mom's credit card. I mean, they don't care about money, so they they just spend money foolishly on fish, just to look at them for a little while until their interest wanes and they go into some other hop. But um, so I mean, and that benefits me if some kid doesn't really care if he spends a lot of money to get really quality fish and he's not that interested in it. But the breeders were really way better because guys like Jim had called me and ordered fish twenty five times. You know, I mean. Uh, there's I've had customers order fish at least 25 times and that's what you want you know you want people you've dealt with you both trust each other you're not looking to you know you're not you're not wondering if the transaction is going to go good or anything like that and it's not that way anymore almost every customer I get is a new customer <laughs> you know it's not somebody who's been doing it forever because there just aren't a lot of people out there doing it forever now why do you think that's changed I think it's because guys like myself getting old and we're kicking off, you know, and uh, the hobby isn't placed with young guys that are just as excited. I mean, kids aren't, when I was a kid, you didn't spend any time in the house to speak of. You were outside playing, playing whatever game, football, you know, running in the woods, you name it, you know, you, you were in sports, you did all kinds of stuff. There was nothing on TV. There was no computers. I mean, we only had two channels on TV, and none of them had anything worth watching. So, I mean, you didn't spend time in front of the TV. Um, you came in the house, and about the only thing we did was, you know, play maybe board games or something like that. So, me, I got interested in animals, you know, in the wintertime or if I'm stuck in the house. I mean, I had my aquariums. I had, I mean, I had every animal you can think of. I mean, I had, you know hundreds of mice and cages and rats and snakes and turtles and you name it i had them and and that's what i had fun with playing with animals and doing stuff and nowadays kids are drawn by just too many things i mean they they've got they've got the amazing tv the amazing internet the youtube and and i don't even know what they all are because i don't I don't participate in all those social media things but they're on their phones 24 7. well you got to milk the cows yeah, I, exactly. I couldn't be on my phone and milk the cows. So, but these guys don't have to milk the cows. They just they just have to be on their phone and 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 maybe playing computer games. They're drawn by so many things that I just don't think most of them have more than a casual interest in an aquarium for a short while. And if you don't develop it early, I don't think you ever really develop it to a great degree. I think that guys like myself are that way because I started when I was a tiny kid. When I was really little, I was fascinated by something that could keep me fascinated because there wasn't a whole lot of other things to take my interest away. And it just grew as I got older. If I was 20, the first time I saw an aquarium, I probably never would have had one. Or if I did, it would have been a disaster for a year or two. Like, you know, a lot of people and, you know, it gets really funky and they put it away and sell it and never have another one. I think that's closer to today's story versus back when I was younger. And I, I hate to see it go that way. And maybe, maybe, you know, like I was talking to you earlier, maybe that'll change maybe with social media, Facebook groups, whatever that get people online looking at beautiful fish and seeing them swimming in videos. 
maybe that'll make them realize, hey, this is pretty neat, and they'll they'll get interested and they'll start getting more people involved. I, I know something like like the IFGA, that's the the uh, International Federation for Guppy uh, Association for Breeders. They have a fish show for guppies, and that that was practically dying out. I mean, they were having lots of shows with 150, 200 entries, which is really poor. And uh, their members were really getting old, kicking off. And, and, and I've noticed now that in the last couple of years, they've been getting entries in the five, six, seven hundred range, which shows a renewed interest. And I, I don't know if it's old guys, you know, setting their tanks back up or if there's a lot more younger guys getting in it. But I do know that's more entries than they've had in a long time. And that suggests to me that something might be turning a corner. You know, maybe maybe there is becoming more interest. Because you don't do IFGA-style guppies without having a, a pretty good dedication. Uh, because you're not going to win a show unless you put a lot of time into your tanks. So, so uh, cross our fingers. What I'd like to do for the listeners out there is I'd like to give you a crash course in starting online. If you're going to start in the hobby and you consider yourself past a fish novice and you want to start breeding, you know, let's give you some steps and please, Steve, you know, uh, interject anywhere along the way. So number one, you need a place for your uh, product to go while you're learning. So talk to your local pet store and most people that start with a hobby start with guppies. I mean, I'm pretty sure that all four of us on this podcast have started with guppies as, you know, our first tropical fish. So... Start with something that you know is easy to breed and you're familiar with. Get quality stock where you know you can find it. And make sure you've had that relationship with your local pet store to say, hey, what would you, uh, what would you pay me if I brought you a uh, product? And normally they'll say, well, I'll give you a quarter a piece or whatever it is. You're not worried about making money yet. You're worried about making sure that your breeding stock has a place to go so you're raising ethically. So start at home, set up a few tanks. And learn your processes. It's all about research. You know what uh, what cycles of the fish on. You know how fast does it do? What does temperature uh, and water changes uh, do to your stock? And get good. It's as simple as that. Get good. And when you have developed that, and you start can consistently produce not just a couple batches, but consistently produce a fish, then can start considering reaching out. Maybe a couple pet stores. Talk to your friends if they want some. And once you have consistent enough orders, only then risk something online because you're not going to waste your time, your advertising. You're sure it was harder in 1996 for, for you to do it, but it's still not free. So when you do it, there's easy-to-use tools nowadays, such as Shopify.com, that essentially you don't have to be an IT expert. You can go pay them a small monthly fee and start your own website and store online. And that allows you to begin to network out your site and start selling slowly. Once you have that established, you can work out for there. But those are essentially the the key is prove your practice and have a place to ethically go with your numbers. Because I've seen too many people like, I'm going to start something. I'm going to call this guy up. I'm going to, hey, I'm going to reach out to Steve uh, Rubicki, get myself, uh, you know, 10 pairs and just expect that you have that practice down. You know, get start with a pair, practice, make sure you have a few, quite a few batches underneath your belt and use easy access online tools but even before that there's the aqua bids you know see how your your product sells know who your market is and practice safely don't just you know dive in and be a jim colby and spend eight thousand dollars in the first 30 days that's right we haven't talked about how i lost my butt the first year on guppies and i think it was about eight thousand dollars thanks for bringing that up robs i'm, I'm here for you 
God. And that was, Steve, do you remember back when, when guppies had that terrible, we called it the Singapore slew around here. What was, what was that? Gram-positive, gram-negative bacterial infections on the saddle? You know, guppies have always had some troubles that I'm not sure anybody has ever really figured it out. Um, I mean, they've, they've, they've gone from thinking that it might be a parasitic, it might be bacterial, it might be viral. It, it, it could be, you know, there's multiple possibilities. And I don't think anybody actually really knows. It might even be a combination of a few things. But uh, guppies are one of those things that, you know, it might be an easy fish, but it's a really easy fish. And I, and, and I want to kind of go back on that point. It's an easy fish to breed. It's a difficult fish to breed. Beautiful one. Absolutely. And Absolutely. there's a big difference. I mean, I mean, all the tips you were just given about starting a business are great tips. But the number one thing, if you want to succeed, I mean, this is this is absolutely critical you will not succeed unless you can raise a superior fish pet shops can buy junky fish all day long for 25 cents a piece they don't need any homegrown fish unless it offers them something they can't buy and the only thing that you can offer them is quality and quality has to be easily seen it can't be one of those things where you have to sit at two fish up and look at it and say, ah, is that one better? Yeah, that one's a little bit better. It's got to be one of them things that 25 feet away, you go, oh my God, look at that fish. That's the best fish I've ever seen in my life. And when they say that, you got them hook, line, and sinker, and you don't have to sell it for 25 cents. You can sell it for $2.50 or $5 or whatever, because once you have that superior fish, you will have you will have your market. You will have your ability to charge a price. And I, I recommend you don't go in and say, what will you give me? Because most of them will say, I'll trade you this little bag of fish food for those 500 fish. <laughs> and and, and, and I, mean, I mean, pet shops struggle to stay alive. And they are the cheapest people I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> on, <laughs> Sorry, on Adam. Average. Sorry, Adam. On average. Well... But, I have also found that if you demonstrate clearly how they can make money, they are all ears and they will. And that's what I used to do. My sales pitch when I went into pet shops was shop down the street. I'm selling them these fish at $2 a piece and they're selling them for 12. They're making $10 per fish and they're buying 50 a week. I think that's 500 bucks. And the guy sits there and he goes, I don't make 500 bucks a month off fish what are you talking about <laughs> and uh, you know i've got his ear i say well that's because uh you can't charge uh twelve dollars a piece you know for your fish you're selling you're buying them for 35 you're selling for a dollar 29 and they're not worth a dollar 20 they're worth about 36 cents <laughs> and you know so you can only make a dollar a piece and nobody wants them because they're ugly wouldn't you rather make them ten dollars a piece and everybody wants them because they're gorgeous and they've never seen a fish like that, that's your goal. Once you get to that point, you make money. When you're at the point where your fish look like everybody else's, forget it. You're not making any money on those fish. I don't care what you're doing. You're not making any money on them. The pet shops, if they want them, it'll be because they want them for almost nothing. And so my suggestion is just make it a hobby. And then if you are, if you happen to become really good at it, Think about making money at that point if you're willing to dedicate the time that it takes to keep that quality up and then charge what they're worth. Don't ask them what they're going to pay you because it still won't pay you anything. You got to you got to say they cost this much and I have a you know, I've got a little batch here I could afford to you know, let go to 
do you I normally send them to what's his name down the street, but you know, I can let you have, you know, a sample of these and try them out. You know, he's selling them for this much money and making this much money a week. And, and that sales technique usually will help. You have to convince the shop owner he's going to make money on your fish. Once you convince him of that, he will buy them. The only reason he doesn't buy them is if he's not convinced he's going to make the money. Because I know what they make on the, on, on the imported fish. I know what they pay for them. And I know what they sell them for. And it's not, they don't pay a lot and they don't make a lot. And a lot of them die because they don't come in in good shape and they're ugly to boot. And, <laughs> you know, I can, go, I can go on and on about the problems that they have with those fish. And so you clearly demonstrate you can take those problems away and make them more money and they'll buy your fish. And so that's if you want to get into the business, that's what you do. You 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 produce something they can't buy because I'm telling you right now, you produce something they can buy. They're not buying yours because they've got a thousand options. And the people in Southeast Asia living in some third world country that's uh, got a standard of living where they live off a dollars, they can sell those fish for 10 cents. They don't care. You know, they're selling a million of them. They'll take 10 cents. And you're not you're not going to make any money selling them at 10 cents a piece at the prices you got to pay to to raise a fish in the United States. So that's that's how I did it. And that's how I would suggest anybody do it. So the last piece of the crash course would be shipping and shipping is the most difficult thing. And that's where, you know, I've uh, I've struggled with it before is I had a website called Fish Funders Plus for about two, two and a half years with Jimmy. And we sold online and we uh, had a pride on ourselves finding fish no one else could. Again, it's the unique experience that uh, you can provide because if they get from wholesalers, you know, there may be things that they just can't find. They'll get their bread and butter stock, but you couldn't find the unique fish. So we could certainly find those unique fish and ship them out. But shipping is the big key of the business. So take your time. Look up. Postal service is probably going to have the cheapest rates, but has limitations on time. Um, UPS, again, will get them there. It'll be convenient and easy, but it'll also cost you a bit more. You can certainly fly uh, them on an airline and maybe do bigger shipments and also have a lower price, but you're going to hate Delta through your teeth. And have to be a known shipper, which is not easy. Yeah, and then you have to deal with uh, people that uh, you know say that you can't ship it to a different state because of those laws, and you'll have to deal with the law enforcement and all kinds of craziness. So the best thing you can do is find yourself small-time local um, shipping industries close to us in the four or five state area. We have a place called Speedy Delivery Service, and it's an independent um, delivery service that if you have to go past their area, Again, they'll just offload it into UPS, but they're good prices, they take care of their product, and they're fast. So do your homework and also call up the corporate offices and see if you can do a contract. When we were working on ours, we were working with the U.S. Postal Service, and at that time, they decided to go over the last mile with Amazon, so we got pushed to the side, but they still offer those services. Do your homework on shipping, and then after you've locked that down, test it. Don't just trust it. Test your shipping methods. Make sure, you know, use the foam uh, boxes. See how heat pa uh, packs work. You know, I've seen people stick them to paper plates. Placement in the box matters. And ship a few fish, trial fish, to a known friend in another state just to make sure that works out for you. Don't be afraid to test it. And shipping is going to be the hardest part of the, of the whole pie, but that at least gives you a crash course to get started. So, Steve... 
is there anything that you feel like we uh, we left out or you want to tell the audience before we uh, we call this a show? <laughs> I don't know. We've covered a lot. I mean, there's, I mean, there's endless topics with fish. I mean, I mean, we. I mean, we haven't touched on a million of the, of the different topics with angelfish or any other fish as far as breeding and, 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 and the intricacies of, of, of developing a strain or any of that kind of stuff. But we're talking, you know, you could spend days on, on, on these things, talking about all the, the different things. But as far as, you know, introducing people to, uh, you know, doing an online business or somehow starting a business uh, selling fish, you know, I think we covered most of the important points. Uh, a lot of this stuff you figure out as you go. I mean, you run into, I mean, you don't, you don't go into any kind of business without having constant uh, problems and constant obstacles. And, and the people who do well are the people who, you know, aren't chased away by those obstacles and those problems. They sit down and they figure out how to overcome them. And, and really that's the, how you succeed, succeed at business. You don't know everything when you start out, you, you know, basics and you, and you build on that with, but with failures, basically, I mean, I, I failed a lot of times before I learned how to do certain things the right way. Uh, I got a quick question, Steve, <clears throat> excuse me. What is, uh, what, what's the main things that you you're raising right now? I, I know you've, you've had some sword tails in the past. You've had some discus in the past. Um, I know angels, what is, what is your main thing that you're, you're pushing right now? Well, my, my main fish is always koi angelfish. And, and the reason it's always koi angelfish is because there is only one angelfish that's brightly colored, and that is the koi angelfish. All these blue strains, they're not brightly colored. They don't even have color. The blue is not a pigment. The blue is a reflection off of a shiny uh, substance called guanine in the cells. So if you have a certain spectrum of light hitting the side of that fish at the right angle, you'll see blue. But if you put that fish in a tank and there's no light hitting it directly or shining or the fish at the wrong angle, it's as blah as, a, as it can be. It's just combinations of grays and blacks and browns. I mean, there is no color. So, so blue is not a colorful fish. It's a fish that flashes some iridescent color under the right circumstances. And the pictures you see on the Internet, 99% of them are juiced to look way better than the fish does. And I know this because I have them. I've had them for a decade. I, I, you know, I've had them for, you know, I don't know, 12 years, whatever it's been. I've done thousands of them. They are not impressive in your tanks. In my opinion, they are not impressive. They are impressive in picture. So, and that is something that I think is people find out very quickly when they do them, they, 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 that, that they're very pretty in pictures, but they're not so pretty in your tank. Koi angelfish, you can turn the, the lights off in your room and you can still see them. They're orange. They're orange pigment. And it's bright. It's almost fluorescent at times. So people love them. And that's why I put, I don't know, half my tanks into that one strain. And double dark blacks, I've always done them because they're difficult to do. And if you do them well, no one else has them. And so, you know, it's, it's, an, it's a fish that people like, but they can't do. So they, and, and albinos the same way. People are incapable of raising good albinos. So if you can do them good, you've got a market almost to yourself. And so I'll do, I'll do certain fish like that for that kind of reason. It's desirable for, you know, X reason. Um, other than that, I do fish that I like. Like right now I have sword tails, I have platies, I have guppies. 
they just keep my interest. They're fun to play with. They're fun to, you know, play around genetically, see what you can create with them and see, you know, see what you can do with them. And I do sell them, but I don't make a lot of money on fish. I don't sell them for high prices. I don't, you know, you know, they sell for, you know, less money than the typical guppy breeder, IFGA breeder is going to be selling them for, or, you know, a really good sword breeder, you know, that, I mean, there's swords out on the market where they're easily a hundred, $150 a pair. And, uh, I, I, you know, I have those, but I don't, I don't sell them yet. I'm, I'm still working on them and I'll never sell them at those prices. So, um, you got to kind of pick your expertise area, uh, concentrate on having the best fish that, that it, people can find of that variety and then sell that fish. I mean, the rest of the stuff, I think you got to kind of look at it more as a hobby because if you try to do a little bit of everything, you're not going to do it. You're not going to do it well. You can't do everything well. You can only, you can only do a couple things well, and you have to choose what those are going to be. So again, thank you, Steve. Um, go to angelsplus.com. Steve has a wonderful blog that uh, he has a plenty of information. Again, we can only cover so much uh, in this topic, but go to angelsplus.com and again, the blog you seem to be posting pretty consistently. And you got full pictures, descriptions, and, of course, you sell angelfish. Actually, the blog isn't my main uh, learning resource. There's a, there's a thing, there's a little, if you go into the footer of the website, it says Learning Center. If you go there, there's a series of articles on care of angelfish, breeding angelfish, you know, different genetics of angelfish. That has most of the information on my website that will be useful to somebody getting into this. And I, actually, there's about 30 articles that still haven't gone up that I haven't transferred from my old website this website's relatively new for me and i'm still getting stuff transferred over and so within the next uh, hopefully within the next month or so i'll get the rest of those transferred over but that's really where the blog has got some interesting information in it but it's not really where you're going to learn a lot breeding or caring for fish or genetics or any of that so that's more in the uh, learning center uh, of the website well, perfect. Angelsplus.com. Certainly check out uh, the stock you have uh, there to purchase. And uh, if they got questions, uh, you know, again, check out his resources in the bottom of the website. Just to remind again, the Learning Center. And uh, I appreciate you have, uh, having you on, buddy. Oh, it was great. It was a pleasure uh, to be here, and I really appreciate you asking me. So, Adam, you got anything for us? I know uh, we didn't get a lot of chance to ch- chat with you this time, but... Uh... What do you do? Oh, no, I was just listening because I was amazed at the F3 from the wilds. And do you ever sell just straight wild stock? Because it's hard to get good wild angelfish that live a um, lot of the time. The, the thing is, my wild stock is domestically bred. It's not, you know, it's not collected in the wild. And so a lot of people would look at that and they say, well, that's not wild. You didn't, you know, it's not collected in the wild. What they're, you know, they're 100% wild fish a couple of generations ago. And it depends. I have a couple of different wild lines. So some of them are older generations and some of them are new. But um, I, I do sell those on occasion. It just depends. I, I don't breed them except when I'm looking to make an outcross usually. So I, I set wild fish up with domestic fish frequently. Um, I don't often set them up wild to wild just to sell wild. But occasionally I get to the point where my pairs are old and I want to get something going new before they kick off because i don't even know when they might uh, i've never actually had them die of old age but <laughs> they live a long lot long time but i don't want to risk them stop breeding and then having nothing so every every 10 years or so i i generally breed them and start over but i don't do it very often on purpose sometimes i'll have crosses that look wild for instance I'll take a 50 wild fish cross it back to wild now i've got a 75 wild fish and i actually have a a, a 
tank. I think it's about a hundred gallon tank with a group of wild, 75% wild angelfish, but there's actually veils and super veils in there because I used a veil fish to make the crosses. And there's 75% wild Peruvian scolari that are super veils and they, they're amazing looking there. You'll never see anything like them anywhere. And, uh, I think I might have, well, I have a video of them up on YouTube, but I don't know if I've got one on my website. But if you go to my YouTube channel, which is linked on the website, and you scroll through the hundreds of videos that are on there, you will see 75% uh, wild adult fish at somewhere within the last couple of years in the videos um, that will show you some fish that are veiled and super veiled, 75% wild. They're, they're just amazing looking. At least I think they are. So I have those on occasion because... Since they're unique, because they have veil in them, I'll offer them for, I'll actually breed them on purpose and offer them for sale. But the wild to wild is not common, you know, maybe once every three or four years. Okay. I just like the wild stuff myself. So, You'll have to buy them. Yeah, I will. But I just like the wild stuff and I never see, you know, good quality wild stuff. Well, most of it's going to be imported and the imported stuff, you you know, when they come from the wild, they always have parasites. Unless the person that's holding him is trying to clean them up for you, you're you're going to bring in a fish that might be a little difficult because, first of all, they're more easily stressed by that domestic environment. And being that they have parasites, oftentimes they get sick once they're under that stress and you end up losing them or not having them do real well. But, uh, you know, it, it that's usually what you're going to run into because there's not a ton of people out there who get wild fish and breed them to each other and then, you know, have the, the little ones for sale. Occasionally you see them, but it's it's not very common. Well, thanks again, Steve. And you yeah. got anything else for us, Jim? Well, I just wanted to, to, to say uh, when you're talking about breeding your angels and you have some that have spawns up to 2,000, I saw Rob's eyeballs about come out of his head. What is the largest spawn you've ever had, Steve, with, with angels? Well, they're, the largest ones I've ever had have been in the 2,000 range. And I think I've had maybe maybe four of those over the, over the decades. Um and the reason I know the count on them is I don't sit there and count each egg. It's, it'd be impossible. Um, but what I do is when I get an exceptionally large spawn and I'm curious, I take a photograph of the spawn, I put it up on the computer, and I put a grid over it. And you make sure that you count the cells in one grid, that it's an average-looking grid, multiply it by the number of grids with cells, and you come up with a pretty close estimate of the number of eggs. And the largest one I think I ever estimated was about 2,200. Um, I've had several right in the 1900 to 2000 range. Um, common spawn size is six to 900. What happens, I think, is that uh, occasionally if a female is holding eggs for whatever reason, because they can hold them, they don't, they don't have to lay them. If you stress them for some reason just before they're going to lay, they, they sometimes won't lay them. And if it goes another 10 days before they lay them, they actually lay twice as many as they normally it's funny, if you actually took an angelfish and you counted the number of eggs they lay in a month, you'll get pairs that'll lay every six days and they'll lay 400 eggs. So you, so you got, you know, a fish that's laying 1,600 eggs a month and you'll get another pair that only lays every 14 days, but they lay twice as many or three times as many eggs and you get the same number. So you can... I think you can easily count on getting about 1,500 to 2,000 eggs a month out of a pair. And that just depends, of course, on a, there's a, there's more factors to it. There's feeding, there's temperature, uh, uh, there's 
quality of the food that you're giving them. There's some genetics involved. If you breed fish with lots of big spawns, they tend to produce fish that'll do the same thing. So you, uh, which is why when I'm selecting pairs and I've got 25 koi pairs set up across the bar and they all look and act and do everything about the same, but one of them lays twice as many eggs as the other, it's the pair I keep for myself. You know, I don't, I, I'm very careful to make sure I'm not keeping pairs that don't do well with all aspects of angelfish. And so, um, but over time, I have found that there just isn't a huge difference out of the good pairs, whether they spawn more frequently with fewer numbers or high numbers less frequently, it ends up being the same. And what happens is they have a certain number of eggs inside them that they're probably born with that are in a uh, state that's very, very tiny, undeveloped. And, 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 and once you know a certain hormone is expressed, the, the egg ripens and becomes larger in a certain number of them, and they do it on a steady basis. And once those eggs are gone, they're gone. And so if you have a fish that spawns every, let's say, every nine days for the first 30 spawns, they might be done after that. They might never give you another. Whereas if you've got a fish that you keep in a cool tank and you keep it at, you know, 72 degrees and you get a spawn once every six or eight weeks out of them, they might be spawning when they're 12 years old because you don't hardly ever, you know, you get three or four spawns a year and you, you get, you, you know, they'll just keep spawning because they have a certain number of eggs to lay. So egg laying, and that's a technique you can use when you're breeding. People go, ah, he's like, why do you keep pumping eggs? And I keep telling them, well, don't feed them so much and don't keep them so warm and they won't spawn as often and, and as much and they won't be as aggressive and they may not spawn at all. So that's a technique to control the number of eggs you get because no breeder needs 20,000 eggs a month. You can't raise them. You, just, you know, you can't do it unless you're a farm with ponds. You, you can't do it. So can't milk the cows that often. Yeah, you can't do it. You can't milk those cows. You know. well, you I have machines to do it. <laughs> I appreciate your time again, Steve. Angelsplus.com. And before I let you guys go, next week, again, we were hoping to have um, this week, but next week we're planning on having Julie from Seagrass Farms give us uh, some inside information. And, uh, again, go to the uh, AquariumGuysPodcast.com. Um, tell your friends. And uh, thanks again. Let's kick that outro. Thanks, guys, for listening to this podcast. Please visit us at AquariumGuysPodcast.com and listen to us on Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes, and anywhere you can listen to podcasts. We're practically Thanks. everywhere. We're on Google. I mean, just go to your favorite place, Pocket Casts. Subscribe to make sure it gets push notifications directly to your phone. Otherwise, Jim will be crying in his sleep. Can, can I listen to it in the in my treehouse? In your treehouse, in your fish room, even alone at work. What about at my man cave? Especially your man cave. Yeah. Only if Adam's there. No. With feeder guppies. No. no. They're endlers. You midget loving <laughs> sucking motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we'll see you next time. <laughs> Later.